Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn with me to the second book in the Bible, the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to start today. Exodus chapter 20. So, man, we, we, we hear about Ten Commandments. We hear the Ten Commandments. Uh, there's a survey that was done, and they, they surveyed thousands of Christians, and they found out that only 14% of Christians actually could recite the Ten Commandments from memory, Four, 14%. So what I'm not going to do is ask by the showing of hands how many here know the Ten Commandments because I don't want you to be embarrassed. Um, but here's what they also found that more people, more Christians knew the seven ingredients to the Big Mac more than they knew the Ten Commandments. I know that this is true because if I start rattling them off now, you're going to finish it. Two all-beef uh, patties, special sauce, pickles, see, pickles on, on a sesame, see, see, you know that. And that's going to lead you to death. This is going to lead you to life, two all-beef patties, special sauce, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. I don't eat McDonald's. I just know this. They have good marketing. <laughs> Amen. But we, we're going to know the Ten Commandments as well as people know the ingredients to the Big Mac. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Real quick. Matter of fact, let's read this together if you've got a Bible. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Ready? Read. Amen. Let us pray. Uh, God, we just want to give you thanks and honor and glory today for just having us here, Lord. Thank you for your presence that has met us today, um, that you've come and joined with us as we gather together to worship you in community. Um, Lord, my prayer today is that you would radically transform our lives, God, that you would, that you would grow us into faith today. If there's someone here today that does not know the Lord today, God, I pray that they will come into a knowledge and understanding of who you are and then surrender their lives to you. For those of us who are in the faith already, God, who are united in Christ, I pray that we would just love you more today, God, that we, through the studying of your word together, that we would, that we would see what you've called us to and that we would be encouraged, God, to, to live into the life that you have planned for us. And so, Lord, I just pray today that you would do a supernatural work in our minds and our hearts, that you would make us more like your son, Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you today. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and the people of God said amen. amen. Maybe seated. From our sermon series, 10 Words to Live By, <clears throat> my sermon title today is Rules Enable Relationship. Rules Enable Relationship. One of the things that I get to do as a pastor is not only preach sermons or lead people or meet with people, one of the things that I get to do is I get to do occasions. And one of the occasions uh, that, that I get to do, I, I get to do weddings. I, I get to do weddings. And 
and I'll be honest with you, as a pastor, a wedding is a bit different from, 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 a, from my perspective as, as a pastor. But, but as I did some research, I found out that in 2023, the average cost of a wedding in the United States of America is, get this, $29,000. And so I, I, I wanted to go a little further. I thought it was fitting that, that I find some research that revealed the 10 most important parts of the wedding ceremony. He, here's where this $29,000 comes from. Number one, you know what you got to find before a person. You got, you, you got to find a venue. You got to find a venue. Once you find that expensive venue, you have to decide on what you're going you're gonna to wear. You got to have your attire. The next thing, because you've dressed up and you got this nice venue, you look nice, you got to have a wedding photographer. Then, because you got other people there, you want to have a good time. What's a party without an expensive DJ? But you want to take care of the people who come in for your special day and treat them better than they treat themselves <laughs> and buy them meals that they don't typically eat on a regular basis. You have to have a caterer. But in order to control the chaos, what else do you need to get structure? You need a wedding planner. Some of you said, I'll do it myself. But not only that, you, you got to decorate. You got to have some stuff going around. You get your little name on it in cursive and look nice. And so you got to have some stationery. Did I forget that you also have to do an exchange there at the altar? And so you have to buy rings. Not only that, because we love our family and friends and we got to get them to and from. Some people even spend money on travel. And, and then in most recent years, the, the new phenomenon is that you got to have a makeup artist to do your face on your special day. Th those 10 things can comprise the $29,000 that people are spending these days on a wedding. But may I suggest to you that those 10 are not even really important, that the most important thing in the wedding is not something that you even pay for. The most important thing in the wedding are the vows that you make. But, but, but vows, what do they really mean if they don't have proper context? Because when you date, no, nobody meets a person and you say vows the first time you meet the person. Th that would be absolutely weird. For, for a gentleman to meet you and he makes vows to you on the very first date. No one makes vows with a person they meet uh, uh, and, and they just get in a relationship with, or they don't make vows if you meet somebody and they're already in a relationship with somebody and you're going to pursue them anyway. You definitely don't make vows to them. You, 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 you may woo a person and pursue them, but it would be very unusual to make vows when both of you have yet to agree that you're going to enter into a relationship. You know, vows are actually most natural and understandable in a certain context, that they determine how you will live in a covenant relationship once you are married. And so, so vows actually, although they are the outset of a relationship, they serve as a hinge and a backdrop for the entirety of the marriage. You know, people that, that know your story about how you met. They, they may be impressed by how the guy pursued the woman or it's 2023 and how she pursued the guy. And, 
and then during the, the wedding, family and friends see the groom crying and, and the bride weeping with joy, and they weep alongside of the couple. Well, I told you as a pastor, I get to do this from time to time, and I just had a recent wedding. And I wasn't expecting that. They, they had their own vows, and as they were standing there in front of me, I, I, I'm ready to read the, the minister's vows, but they had their own vows, and they both whipped out a piece of paper with their vows written on them, and those papers looked long enough to be placed on stone tablets. It is hot. sun is hitting the back of my neck, and I'm like, O-M-G. But, but, but before the groom even reads his vows, he starts recalling the story of how they met. I'm thinking, man, make this quick. This is, I'm hot. <laughs> and he, he talked about how he loved her at first sight before she did anything. He says he set his eyes on her and loved her from that moment on. He said there was nothing that she had to do but to make herself acceptable to him. He just loved her. He cried, and I notice other people crying, and I have stuff running down my face, but it's not tears, it's sweat. <laughs> he cried, and I noticed the people are all misty-eyed as he's reading his vows to her and pledging his commitment, and people are weeping as they both set their vows and what they would commit to in a relationship. People saw beauty in that they wrote these words, these rules these broad rules for their relationship. The, the, the audience thought that these were good words for them to live by because people could appreciate the vows because they appreciated their story. And the problem is that we can't appreciate the Ten Commandments because we don't appreciate the story. When we get to Exodus chapter 20, God has done the same thing to Israel. He has set his affections on them before they could do anything. He pursued them and he rescued them from their Egyptian bondage that they had been in for over 400 years. Back-breaking labor and slavery under an oppressive regime. And then three months after they've been delivered from Egyptian bondage, God has brought them into the wilderness and they end up in front of a mountain called Mount Sinai, which I'll refer to as the wedding venue. This is where God makes his vows makes the covenant relationship with them. But before he gets to the vows, he recalls the story. We cannot start with the commandments until we first appreciate the story. And if you look at verse 2, we skip this and we get right to the commandments. But if you look at verse 2, he says, I am the Lord. I am yours. I belong to you. I am your God. And guess what? I brought you out of the land of Egypt and I brought you out of the place of slavery. God is making a claim on his people. He's saying, I'm your God. You are my people. You belong to me and I belong to you. This, this is a covenant relationship. I am the one that got you out of your situation. I've changed your identity 
and your status. I delivered you by the way of ten plagues when you were in Egypt. I did some miraculous stuff. I brought you through the Red Sea. And I just want you to remember what I did. They were helpless. Couldn't save themselves. They were too weak. They had no chance to save themselves whatsoever. How do you know this? They had been there for 400 years. And that's our problem. We try to save ourselves. But you realize you can't save yourself. They're there for four. Who gets stuck somewhere for 400 years? Who doesn't leave if they can help it? They're helpless, unable to save themselves. And he's saying there was only one that could save you from your bondage. And God took the initiative to rescue them. He pulled up on them. The, the young man in the wedding said, I met her in a drive-thru. I said, wow. People be meeting anywhere. God says, I, I took the initiative to rescue them by, by his own divine choice and initiative, by his grace and his mercy. He saw their plight. He set his affections on them. And in his salvation, God takes the initiative. This is a good point for us. In salvation, God always comes first. God initiates salvation. We do not do anything. We cannot help ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. God does. In salvation, God always takes the initiative. His salvation to them was a gift. They didn't work for it. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. They were too weak, too small, too helpless. And God comes in and saves them. Here's a key thing for you to notice. The commandments don't come first. Salvation does. I need you to see this. The commandments don't come first. Salvation does. Let me put it better to you. Grace comes first. Grace comes first. He didn't say, hey, keep these 10 and then we'll see what, you, what we're talking about. Hey, do these 10 and then I'll see about getting you out of Egypt. Keep these 10, and then I might make your life a little bit better. Do this, and I'll do that. He doesn't do that. He saves them first. And this is the same thing that Christ has done for us. He saved us first. They were rescued from human bondage, and through Christ, we've been rescued from sin's bondage. But this is where we stop. And we make a fundamental mistake in our understanding of God's purpose in our lives. God did not save us so that we can stop doing bad things or to get us out of bad situations. He doesn't free us so that we can then go and do what we want to do. God is smarter than that. God knows if he frees us and allows us to do what we want to do, guess where we'll end up? Right back. You ever came out and went back in a couple of times? God knows that that is natural to us. So he says, instead of saving you and leaving you aimless and purposeless, I save you from something and I save you to something. I don't just save you and leave you purposeless. I save you, set you free so you can be free to be who I called you to be. He saves us himself. If you are saved 
A, it is not because God has saved you to go out there and live your life the way you want to live and do the thing that you want to do and claim grace, 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 forgiveness, 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 but I'm going to live my life. It's not what he calls us to. He sets us free so that we can be free to be who he wants us to be. We are not just saved from, we are saved to become. God has saved you to become something. This is about us belonging, belonging, belonging in a relationship with the one living, true God. He has saved us to be with him. He, he is our redeemer. He is our savior. He does not save us so that we can go out and be in a relationship with somebody else. He saves us for himself. And what he's saying to them when he says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. What he's saying is, you belong to me. I love you first. I fought for you. This young man was telling a story. He just said his affections on this young lady. And thankfully, luckily, she felt the same way. Because that would have been weird if he stuck his claim on her and she was like, "Uh uh-uh. You know how it is in school, young ladies, when a, when a guy likes you, maybe hopefully this was an elementary school, not a high school or college, so that'd be weird. You know, you don't like that, but he's like, no, I, I claim you. You don't have to like me. I like you first. <laughs> this is what God does. He saves them because he loves them. We got to get that. He saves them because he loves them. And this is what Christ does for us. You know what Romans 5 and 8 says? It says... But God proves his own love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say when we got our stuff together, cleaned up our act, got our life right, then he saved us. No, it says that while we were stuck in the mess, in slavery, in bondage, in Egypt, couldn't get out of our own way, hard labor, sin after sin after sin, piling up on top of itself, he says, I set my affections on you. I love you. Because I love you, I desire your happiness far more than you do. And here's what I'm going to do. Because I love you and we're in a relationship, I'm now going to tell you how to live and thrive in this relationship. And if you live this way, you will have the life that your heart really desires. Because what you think you want is not really what you want. And we have to understand this. God did not give us the Ten Commandments as rules to make us miserable. He gave them to us as a guideline to flourish in our relationship with him. And here's what he says. Because I am the Lord, your God, brought you out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Now you're free. I'm going to give you ten words to live by. And in the words of Jen Wilkin, shameless plug for life groups, he gives them rules that will enable their relationship. God has already shown love 
when he delivered them from bondage. Remember what, John, what Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so we get to the commandments. The Bible refers to them as, as 10 words. They're never called commandments in the scriptures. But when we look at Deuteronomy, look at parts of Exodus, they're actually called the 10 words. And there are two tables. You wanna, all you note takers want to write this down. There are two tables. So here's what you need to know about the commandments of the 10 words. One through four is about our relationship with God. Five through 10 is about our relationship with other people. The first four are dealing with our vertical relationship with God. The last six are horizontal in how we deal with people. And so it's not enough for us to say, I love God. God says, no, your love for me and my love for you transforms you so that you are now able to love your neighbor. The first four, the first table of the law goes to you and your relationship with God because if you and God are good, as some people say, then there inevitably will be health in your relationship with people. Let me just say that some people will say, well, well, I'm not a Christian, so I'm not held to these. I don't know the Ten Commandments. I don't want the Ten Commandments. I don't, I'm not, not, I don't believe in that. I'm not fit. If somebody tells you that, it's not true. They know the law, whether they've ever read the Bible or not. Here's how, here's how you know this. Here's what Paul said in Romans. Watch this. Romans 2, verses 14 through 15. He says this in the NLT, he says, even Gentiles who do not have written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it. Even without having heard it, they demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. Whether people claim they know the law or not, God says, I already put it on your heart. So on the day of judgment, you can't pretend plead ignorance. It's already been written on your heart. I love the way Dr. Eugene Peterson puts it in Romans 2, 14 through 16, in the message version. Here's what he says. When outsiders who have never heard of God's law follow it more or less by instinct... They confirm its truth by their obedience. They show that God's law is not something alien, imposed on from without, but woven into the very fabric of our creation. There is something deep within them that echoes God's yes and no, right and wrong. Their response to God's yes and no will become public knowledge on the day God makes his final decision about every man and woman. The message from God that I proclaim through Jesus Christ takes into account all these differences. Here's how you know this. Because most people on the street, whether they're saved or not, if you walk up to them and ask them, do you think it's right to murder? No one will say yes. There are very faithful husbands and wives who do not commit adultery, don't trust Jesus. There are people at your job who are morally good, who would never steal, but they don't trust Jesus. They would argue that he doesn't exist. They would argue that the Bible is not real, that it's fake, that it's fabricated, that it's made up. Then your question is, well, why are you obeying it without knowing it? Why do you think that these laws are good ideas? If it doesn't exist and it doesn't count, go kill somebody. 
still take something from somebody. What's the, nobody cares. It, God's not real, so why are you obeying something if it doesn't exist? You know why they're obeying it? Because it's already written on their hearts. They just refuse to acknowledge the truth. But we as Christians, some argue, well, we don't have to keep this. That's old stuff. We're under the grace now. We don't have to do that old law stuff. That's Old Testament. I'm with Jesus in the New Testament. God in the Old Testament, mean and rigid. Jesus, nice and fluffy. Are we to keep the law? Yes or no? Yeah. But the reason why we keep it is different. We don't keep it to earn God's love. We keep it because he has already loved us. We keep these out of love for God. And I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. We keep them because of what God has already done for us. We trust him. He established that we can trust him when he got us out of our mess. When he took us from death to life, when we didn't deserve his love, his mercy, his grace, he did it for us anyway. We can trust him. Matter of fact, when one of the experts of the law comes to Jesus in the New Testament in Matthew's gospel, he says, teacher, which man in the law is the greatest? And here's what Jesus says. Jesus wasn't about Ten Commandments. Here's what Jesus says. He says, Verse 37, he said to him, Matthew 22, 36 to 40, he said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And in verse 37 of Matthew 22, Jesus is reducing the first four, the first four laws into one sentence. I told you the first four deal with our relationship with God. So we get to Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind. That takes care of all the first four. Then he says in verse 38, this is the greatest and most important commandment. And 39, he said the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Guess what he's doing there? Putting the whole second table, 5 through 10, into one sentence. And so Jesus is telling them to keep the law. And what is the first thing that God demands? The same thing every good marriage relationship will have exclusivity now when a couple in a wedding pledge their commitment to each other and their faithfulness we say oh my god that's so beautiful oh my god he met her in the drive-thru oh my god he saw her first he put his eyes on her he said I loved you at first sight there's nothing you had me at hello And we say, oh, they're going to be so faithful to each other. But when God says, I rescued you from your sin and death. And I want to pledge my exclusivity to you. Will you pledge it back? If you agree with these, will you say, I do? And we say to God, ah, oh, oh, I don't know, man. I saw a couple the other day. I don't know if I can do it. Just me and you. I mean, it's hard out here. All of these options. I don't know. Ooh. It's tough, boy. That's why I'm like trying. I can't keep committing because I'm like, can't commit to one because then every time another keeps pulling me back. I don't know. 
So when God says, do not have other gods besides me, all he's saying is, just be in a relationship with me. Do not have other gods besides me. Oh, does that mean I can have some other gods? Oh, is he talking about just priority? Oh, sure. God, I can keep you first. I'll come home. I'll pay the bills. I'll protect you. I'll drop the kids off. But I'm still going to do my thing. Nobody would agree to that if the groom or, or the bride said that at a wedding. Everybody would, would say, this is ridiculous. They don't deserve to be married. But when God says it, ah, ah, he's not saying as long as I'm first. He's saying, I don't want, there's nobody else in addition to me. There's no one other than me. There are no gods at all. Why? Because of the love and gratitude that you have for what I've done. In a word, what is God requiring? Loyalty. That is such a strong buzzword in our culture. I want friends that's loyal. I want somebody that's loyal. I want loyal. Oh, no, they ain't loyal. So we knock off what God is requiring, but when he wants it, uh, I'm not so sure I can do that. Well, how do you expect that from your friends and your romantic partners, but when God requests it, it's a problem? not asking for anything strange. Jesus said it like this. He speaks to the the futility, the foolishness of it. Matthew 6, 24, he says, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. So the temptation for us, the temptation for us is not to stop worshiping God. That's not the temptation. We don't struggle. We, 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 I, yes, God first. Our temptation is to worship God and. That's the struggle. It's not just God only. Okay, yeah, yeah, I worship. Yeah, I worship God. He's first. He's my priority. No, God is saying the problem, the temptation is going to be and something else. And when he tells this to them, it's not, it's not as easy as it reads. They've been in Egypt for 400 years They've done things the way the Egyptians have. They've lived in the Egyptian culture. You know what was normal in the Egyptian culture? Not monotheism, worshiping one God, but polytheism, worshiping multiple gods. That is the norm. They've been in this for 400 years. This is natural to them. And the likelihood that they will revert back to polytheism is very high. And so when God calls them to this, Worship of one God, this monotheism, although they know it to be true, it's not easy. Because they've been indoctrinated in plurality. They've been indoctrinated in polytheism. But they they know it is in their background to worship one God. You know what the Hebrew people always knew? You know what they quoted? You know what they were supposed to teach their children? Something called the Shema that's that's recorded in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Here's, Here's what the people would say every day. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Then they would say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind. That was their normal, that was their, 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 their mode of operation. But now they've grown accustomed to a whole different way of worship. Let me say something to you about idolatry in that context. Idolatry in that context was essentially worshiping the gods for the right things to get the right result. So I'm going to worship the God to get something from him. So in paganism, this is an important note. God exists for humans, not humans for God. Let me say this again because some of you look confused. In paganism, God exists for humans, not humans for God. In Christianity, God doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. He's not here to serve our purposes. We serve his purposes. He was not created. We were. But this is what they've grown accustomed to. And here's what he needs to understand. Number one, you didn't rescue me out of a terrible plight. I'm God. I didn't need your rescue. You weren't, I wasn't bound. You were. I was not lost. You were. You couldn't get yourself out. I've always been free. I have not struggled with sin. I'm holy. You struggle with sin. You have been defeated by sin. I have not. I've defeated sin for you. And so how is it that I can exist for you? No, that's not true. You exist for me. He says, I prove this to you. Because no other God in history had ever miraculously and supernaturally rescued an entire people from bondage. This was not, worship of one God was not uncommon. If you look at Isaiah 45, it says, I am the Lord and there is no other God, there is no me. Here's what God is saying ultimately, I don't have no rivals. That there's nobody that competes with me. That there's, there is nobody. Here's how I prove it to you. If you read in the book of Exodus, if you read a couple chapters before chapter 19, if you, before we get to the Ten Commandments in 20, if you read, you know how God got them out of Egypt? He sent ten plagues on the Egyptians. Here's what's important. You just read those plagues, and I don't want to read that. That sounds gross. Frogs, blood, that's weird. I don't want to talk about that. You know what? You know what he's, doing? You know what he's doing? Each one of those things that God did to bring your mouth all representative of a pagan deity. And so with every plague, he's defeating a pagan deity. He's knocking them off. They set them up. He's tearing them down. He's tearing them down, and he's proving to them, I don't have no rivals. Nobody can beat me. Nobody can defeat me. There's no enemy big enough to challenge me. I'm like Debo out here in the universe. I, I am I, like nobody can stand up against me. Everybody gets knocked out. Bring them up. Let them come forward. I'm knocking them out. Whoever comes up, I'm knocking them down. I'm like Mayweather out here. Nobody can beat me. And this is what he's proven to them, that there is nobody that can stand up against me. You got an enemy? I can destroy him. Move out of the way. I'm proving to you that not only can God not stand up to me, let me let you in on a little secret. They don't exist way. You're giving something that does not exist power over you. 
you perceive something that's not even real. The reality is I am the only God. Nothing else exists. It's just me. And so because of that, here's what God is saying. Getting close to being finished. God is saying, because I am God, because I rescued you, because I showed my love to you, I refuse to just be a part of your life. I don't want of your life. I'm not a side God. With me, the all or nothing. I have full, complete rights and authority over your life and your existence. Because I am God. God is not interested in helping us get the life that we've always imagined for ourselves. God does not insist on telling us what we want to hear. God is insisting on giving us what we need. So if you're wondering, what is an idol? Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, gives us a great, great definition of what an idol is. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that you should lose it, your life will feel like hardly worth living. And if you're being honest, we've all been there. In each one of our lives, there has been something at some point in your life, maybe even now, that you feel like if I don't get this, life might not even be worth living. Jesus, take me now. And he's saying, whatever that is, is your idol. It could be your money. It could be your career. It could even be your family. It could be your image. It could be your education. It could be several different things. Whatever it is that is more important to you than God. What do you have get to that God gets in the way of. I would, but God just, look at him, just standing there, just in my way from allowing me to do the thing that I know would make me whole. if, if, If he would just give me that thing and just get out of the way, everything would be all right. If he would just, just give it, just let me find out. Just let me, I want to experience it. Yeah, whatever, God, whatever. I, yeah, 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 you know what's best. But just give me the thing anyway. That's your idol. Here's what he goes on to say. Here's what Keller says. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that. What is your that this morning? What is the one thing that you feel like is missing? What is the one thing that as soon as you get a free moment, your mind runs to it? One of the ways that you can tell what an idol is, is by identifying the first thing you think about when you have free time. When you're not busy and you're just alone, you and your thoughts, what is that that you think about? 
I know some of you are like, it's the goodness of God, Pastor. It's the glory of Jesus. Jireh, he's more than enough. But for the rest of us, what is it that you think about? What is that thing other than God? That's how you identify it. So what do I do if I've identified it? How how do I eradicate an idol? You don't uproot an idol and move it and do nothing. Because guess what? It's going to come back. You uproot something and you plant something new. And what I'm saying is you need to plant Jesus. Let him be your foundation. Let him take root in your life. Identify the idol. Put off the old. Take it off and then clothe yourself with the righteousness of Jesus. Lean on the Holy Spirit. Trust in him. When you get to those moments where you think that other thing will satisfy, you have to know in your heart of hearts and know that Jesus is the only thing that can satisfy me. So, Pastor, I'm going to lean on the Holy Spirit in the grace of God to do this. But, Pastor, I'll be honest with you. What I found out is when I try to keep, keep God's commands, I, I be breaking them sometimes. I inevitably break. I, I try. I try not to misuse the Lord's name, but it, <laughs> Pastor, you've driven on I-4 before. You know, come on, man. You've been on the 408. Come on, come on, man. Pastor, you don't know where I work. I, mean, I, try, I try, to, try to keep my, keep my eyes straight, but, but, man, come on, man. Pastor, I try to, try to free my heart from other idols, but, but sometimes it just happens. And, and, and so here's the thing. You, you may say, well, I, well, you know what, I'm good because I, I keep, keep some of them. Here's what James said, the Lord's brother. James 2 and 10. For whoever keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking them all. <laughs> you break one, you break them all what do you do? Because if you break it, if you're a lawbreaker, the penalty, the penalty of that is death. The penalty for lawbreakers is death. You deserve the wrath of God. God is holy. He can't, he can't stand sin. There's like when you break the law, it is punishable. We understand that. We know if we run a traffic light, if the cop sees us, there's an infraction. Even, even now, if you run a light and no cop is around, you'll get something in the mail where they've taken a picture of your license plate and they will mail you your ticket. There's better stuff that they could do with their money than taking pictures of me running through a red light and sending me something in the mail. How did you get my address, sir? But if you break it, what do you do? Because you have to pay for it. You're stuck 
If you are here today and you are a lawbreaker, you are in trouble. And you can't go to traffic school. You can't hire a good attorney. You don't have enough money to hire an attorney to get you out of this situation. You're stuck. There's only one way out if you're in trouble today. If you look at the 10 and you've, breaking, you've broken any of them, you're in trouble. But I got good news. There's one who came and kept every single one of them. But he didn't just keep it to keep it. He kept it for your sake. Jesus says this. Don't think, this is Matthew 5, 17. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill it. Jesus kept the law perfectly. We fall short of God's law, but in Christ, there is redemption and forgiveness because he has kept the law for us. Last thing, and I'll be done. My second close. There are a couple uses of the law. And the second use of the law, theologians have said it's like a mirror. You hold it up to your face, and it reveals that your face is not clean. We have mirrors so that it would give us an accurate depiction of what we look like. And when we look at the law, we see the holiness, the beauty of God's character, his wholeness and perfection, but we see that we're flawed. But when you look in the mirror and your face is not clean, you don't rub your face against the mirror. It drives you to go to the water to wash your face clean. And the law is driving us to the one who can make us clean, which is Jesus. So if you're here today and you've tried to keep the law and you realize that you have fallen short, that you've broken all of them at some point or another, Jesus says, I've kept this for you. I've kept it for you. I did it on your behalf. I am the goal and the purpose of the law. It was meant to drive you to me. So if you're here today and you can acknowledge that you are a lawbreaker and you have not already trusted in the perfect law keeper, then today he's offering you an invitation to be free. All eyes closed, heads bowed. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.